Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in The Kick, how one runner broke three hours in the marathon while pushing 180 pounds. We've also got a story from the finish line of the New York City Marathon. What it looks like and sounds like long after the crowds have gone, the barricades have been removed, the timing clock has stopped, but the runners just keep on coming, one 96-year-old runner in particular. First, though, my interview with Roger Robinson. Roger is among our sport's true Renaissance men. He's an author, a journalist, a professor emeritus of literature, a running historian, a longtime contributor to Runner's World and Running Times, and a competitive runner. We talked about his rather humble start as a runner, coming into his own as a master's athlete, his perspective on the last 50 years of the sport, and his new running companion, Russell. Russell, by the way, is not a dog. We also talked about how running and racing intersects with his love of literature. I love the, the drama of it, and I love great big long 19th century novels. <laughs> I love yeah. the way they, they evolve, and the way you get a multiple plot, and the way you need to take your time. And uh, you know, I like the length, and I like the way the drama unfolds. And I've, always, I've written about this often, the great appeal of racing is that it's like a really high-level drama, and you're part of it. In fact, this conversation with Roger about literature and writing got a few of our colleagues here at Runner's World thinking about their own favorite running-related passages. And a couple even volunteered to read them for the show. So lots of great stuff to share with you today. Thanks for joining us. When it comes to running, Roger Robinson was a bit of a late bloomer. He began to show some promise while studying at Cambridge University in England, where he started racking up cross-country and track titles. In the late 1960s, he moved to New Zealand with his family to teach literature, and while he was there, he started dominating that country's road races. He didn't run his first marathon, however, until 1980. Roger's first 26.2-miler was the New York City Marathon. He ran it in an impressive 2 hours, 22 minutes, 13 seconds, at the age of 41. Six months later, he ran the Vancouver Marathon in Canada, where he set his PR of 218.45, which is a 40-plus marathon master's record that still stands for that event. Roger also set a master's record at the 1984 Boston Marathon when he ran 220.15 at age 44. And in 1989, he set a 50-plus master's marathon record, running the New York City Marathon in 228.02, that was at age 50. Roger is also an accomplished journalist, author, and historian. He's written numerous books on running, including Heroes and Sparrows, Running in Literature, and The Spirit of the Marathon. He is the co-author of 26.2 Marathon Stories with his wife, Catherine Switzer. Yep, that Catherine Switzer, the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon in 1967. And, of course, Roger has been a longtime contributor to Runner's World. He is retired from teaching now, but he continues to write and to run. In fact, at age 77, he's still setting age group records. There were so many things I wanted to talk about with Roger, what he finds so compelling about Masters running, how he has dealt with one particularly tough setback, and this is where Russell comes in, and just why running lends itself to literary exploration. And as this is our 50th anniversary here at Runner's World, 
I also wanted his perspective on the biggest changes in our sport over the decades. Well, Roger Robinson, thank you so much for joining us on the Runner's World Show. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for a long time, especially in this, our 50th anniversary year of Runner's World. Yeah, David, well, it's uh, it's great that Runner's World is celebrating that history because, as, as you know, I've always been interested in the history of running as well as running itself. And so congratulations on all you're doing on that. Well, thank you. And before we get to that, I actually want to start by talking a bit about you and about your running career. How and where did you get started running? And when was it that you realized that you had that magic combination of talent and desire to be able to run at a very high level? Uh, well, uh, David, a, a few days ago, I was tested at the Cooper Clinic down in Dallas. And as part of it, you had to fill in how many years you have been doing regular daily exercise. And I thought about it, <laughs> and I finally put down 74. <laughs> because 74 I I, years. I started, wow. I started daily exercise when I was about three. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I don't remember beyond that. But certainly, I, you know, I played soccer and was always active as a kid and then found that um, I had no talent for soccer. You know, my ambition was, like all, all English children, was to play soccer for England. And then I found that uh, there were two problems. One, I wasn't big enough, and the other, I had no talent. So I decided that, that was going to limit that one. So I started running, and I lived near one of London's main tracks. And so I used to crawl through the hedge when I was eight years old and watch people like Arthur Wint and Roger Bannister training on Motsford Park track. And that was at the time of the 1948 Olympics. So I kind of got hooked on the sport mm. then. You, you talked about the combination of talent and desire. I think the desire was always there because... Uh, I, you know, I wanted to do sport. I wanted to be good at sport, but I had no outstanding ability. I was quite good, but not very good. Uh, but what's the strange thing that seemed to happen was that every now and then I would pop a good one. You know, some something would happen that seemed to lift me above the level that I was normally operating at. When I first went to university, for instance, to I was, I was at Cambridge University at a time that we had an extraordinary strength in distance running. Uh, the one name that you would be familiar with was uh, was Herb Elliott, who was only number three in the team, in the cross-country team. And Only I'm, number three. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, <laughs> And I was just using that as a shorthand of saying what depth we had. You know, yeah. number four or five in that team was Tim Johnston, who later finished sixth in the Olympic marathon, and so on. So that was the kind of depth. So I couldn't make that team in my final, my, my senior year as, at, at university. So that's the level I, I was. I was really, really B-team. Uh, in that situation. But then uh, the day came when in a day of extraordinary snow in England, uh, the worst winter England ever had, and the whole course was deep in snow, and they had the county, as they call it, it would be like state cross-country championships. And I was hoping to make the first 10 and maybe make the Surrey team and suddenly found myself winning the race. So that was a day that lifted me. I was 23 then. And th that pattern seemed to go on. I, I was pretty ordinary and, and would raise the level a bit. And then in 1966, suddenly again, I surprised myself and everybody else uh, by one day make, uh, in the English National Championships, getting in the top 10 and making the England team for the World Cross Country. I've, I've been perpetually surprised. I've never thought for a minute I, when I went to New Zealand, I never thought for a minute that I was going to be good enough 
in my 30s, and then late 30s, to, to run for New Zealand, and then finally got to that level as well. So that was the pattern, David. I don't think it was... It's not an extraordinary talent. I think it was... I mean, I've got a, a great persistence, I think, and a talent for hard work. Um, but the results came more slowly. Yeah. So it sounds like you were a bit of a late bloomer, if that's not oversimplifying. That is, no, that's true. That's true. I didn't get any significant results till I was 23, and that may have been just physical... Um, or it may have been that I really didn't train that hard. You know, I was a busy student. I was getting scholarships to Cambridge and things like that and working really hard at academic work. And I, I always ran, but I, was, I wasn't running anything with anything like the, um, the regularity and, and, and the, the discipline training that, that high school kids are running now. Uh, of course, you went on when you were age 41 to set uh, a couple of master's marathon records um, you ran your best two hours, 18 minutes, 44 seconds. Was that in, in New York? Oh, that was in Vancouver. The actual personal okay. best was, was the Vancouver Marathon in 81. But you also set Masters Marathon records on the course at Boston and New York. Yes, I did. I set the over 50 record at New York. Didn't, didn't get the over, over, twi- over 40 record because Jack Foster had that. Uh, at about 2.17 at that time, and I couldn't quite do that, but I got the one at Boston when I ran that at age 44. This this is where, Dave, this is where my history intersects very nicely with the bigger history. I was mm. incredibly lucky that as I was getting towards 40 and still running, people used to say, when are you going to give up? And I would say, oh, well, I know sometime, but I'm still enjoying it and still running well, etc." But just at that time, just as I was turning 40, which was uh, in the late 1970s, the whole running boom was happening and master's running was developing, mm-hmm. uh, both in New Zealand where I was living, but also in America. So when I came across to America in 1980 on a period of research leave, there were all these fabulous races. Hal Higdon organized a series called the Brooks Masters Races, which are sponsored by Brooks Shoes. And that got the top masters in North America, Canada, and, and America together. And I was there, so I ran as well. And, and uh, that was a terrific series. And then, of course, I was able to take the master's award at the New York City Marathon. And there'd never been anything like that. Five years before, people would have said, what's master's? You know, they would, they would right, have had no right. idea of, of recognizing the over 40 runners in that way. So I was very lucky that the timing just worked out for me. And that was partly why I kept going, because I was enjoying it so much. And suddenly there was a new kind of incentive there as well. How was competing as a master's runner different for you? Physically, I don't, it, does, it never feels different, David. And you would know this now. <laughs> it's, um, you know, you keep on running hard. Uh, and it feels just the same as it ever did. It's just that afterwards they tell you that your absolute top effort is now 730 miles instead of 430 miles, and it's a, mm. it's a, it's a mystery as to how that happened <laughs> because it feels exactly the same. Right. So that makes me wonder whether there's a difference for you between running for competition and running for enjoyment. Are they one and the same, or are they different experiences, do you think? No, I think they're very much the same with me. Uh, I remember a few years ago when I was slowly getting back into it after the knee replacement and thinking I would never be able to race. But I just thought this is wonderful just to be able to run. Uh, We're very fortunate in Wellington, New Zealand. There's a beautiful range of hills behind the city and you can run up through the bush. There's some absolutely fabulous tracks and then you get into this, you get up onto this skyline 
track, as it's called, where the views are just absolutely spectacular. You can see five ranges of, of mountains. And I thought, well, it's wonderful just that I'm going to be able to do this again. If I never race again, it doesn't matter. But then, of course, as soon as I began to think about maybe racing, even though the level was very modest, and I actually finished dead last in, in, in one race that I ran, um, I, I, just, I was still hooked. I still wanted to try and run as well as I could. And, and I, don't, I don't separate that. I've always called it purposeful fun, as is, was the phrase I used in my first book. Mm, um, yeah. I, I, and people say, why don't you just run for fun? And I say, I, I, I do run for fun. I get enormous, I get enormous fun out of uh, both the effort of competition and then the bonding that you get with people through competition. And that's, that's something really important, I think, that when you run really hard against somebody, um, you create a kind of bond, like climbing a mountain together, I suppose. Even though you've been trying to beat each other, uh, then afterwards you respect each other so much, whether you won or lost. And, and in the last two years, I've made some really good friends around America uh, from people I've had these great battles with, and, and it's been great. So, yeah, I've, I've always argued, don't tell me I'm not having fun because I am. Right, even though you're pushing yourself very hard. And oh, even though limits. the medical people come up to the end of the end of the race very anxiously and say, "Are you all right, sir?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I say, "Well, yes, I've been doing this for the last seventy-two years. I've been like this at the end of every race." <laughs> Do you recall with any specificity the feeling you got when you would crawl through those hedges in your hometown in England and watch? the track competition. What was it that captured your imagination? It's the purity, the intensity of the competition. Um, the, the fact that clearly pe people, you get, people are getting results not only from natural talent, uh, but also from their mental focus and, and their determination. I was always attracted also to the longer races, even as a little boy. Partly because I was absolutely useless as a sprinter, completely, absolutely hopeless. I was born without any fast twitch mm. fibers at all, I think. Um, and I, I loved the, the drama of it. And I guess this is why, as a, as a literature professor, my main speciality was the novel. And I, and, and I loved big, big, great big, long 19th century novels. <laughs> I love yeah. the way they, they evolve and the way you get a multiple plot and the way you need to take your time. And uh, doesn't all, you know, I'm not a soundbite person at all. Uh, you know, I like the length and I like the way the drama unfolds. And I've always, I've written about this often, the great appeal of racing, and, and you get it at its most intense, of course, on the track, is that it's like a really high-level drama and you're part of it. You're one of the characters, and you don't know how it's going to end. So before we move on to history, and also I want to talk to you about running and literature. You mentioned that a moment ago. I want to ask you about your knee replacement. What happened? What? When did you realize that you needed to have that surgery, and how has it gone? Well, I started limping at age about 54. The knee hurt. Uh, I... Um, and I couldn't run properly. I had to give up racing. And then eventually, uh, by the time I was about, I was just just approaching 70, I think, or just over 70, I really couldn't run at all. It was so painful. 
so I went to see the surgeon in Wellington, and he said, "Yes, you've got no cartilage there. You need it's, the bone is wearing. You, you've got to have a replacement." And I was really spooked by it, David. I just I, mm. something I did not want to do. I remember the morning of the surgery. You know, I, I was almost ready to to cry off and say, "I'm not going to do this." Because he'd shown me the prosthesis that he was going to put in my leg, and it just looked so alien, this great chunk of metal and plastic. And I thought, oh, my God, that's a... my legs are important to me because <laughs> you know, yeah. I've been a runner. I don't want that. And it was it was terrible thought. But then slowly, uh, this is uh, three or four months after the surgery, and then one day I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just shuffle. And I shuffled for 10 paces and... Nothing seemed to happen. <laughs> so, so, so then the next day I shuffled for a few more paces and, and so it went on. And I remember about four months afterwards, I was, I was in Boston for the, covering the Boston Marathon. Um, and I was out running on the Charles the day before and I met Billy Rogers. And, and this Billy said, oh, you're running. I said, Billy, don't tell Catherine. Don't tell Catherine because I'm not supposed to run. <laughs> 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 anyway, just gradually built up from there. And, and now it's at the point when I'm running times that are really competitive in my age group, not quite world beating, but not, but not far off it. And, and I, very, I've, I think I haven't been beaten uh, over 75 since, since I turned that. And I ran in the U.S. Um, 5K championships a couple of weeks ago in Syracuse and I ran the U.S. 10K championships. Uh, so I'm running well. And now it's becoming a, a source of possible research interest. And I'm working yeah. with the surgeon back in New Zealand. He's given me some recent literature, which is suggesting that maybe I was right. And maybe the previous thinking was that by doing high impact activity like running on a knee replacement, you would loosen the replacement. That's, the, that's what shortens its life. Now they're thinking maybe by building the muscle and increasing the bone density, you are actually slowing the process of loosening. There's the, 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 the jury's still out, the research is still in very early days, but that may be the direction it's going. So maybe just in my sort of slightly stubborn and disobedient way of wanting, <laughs> wanting to get running again, despite what everybody told me, maybe I was actually ahead of that. And uh, as you know, I mean, I've made something of a character of, of, of my knee replacement. He's called Russell, uh, named after the surgeon that, that implanted him. Uh, who is called Russell Tregoning, very, very good surgeon. And he makes public appearances. When I'm giving speeches, I, I say, well, there's somebody else who's been an important part of my story, and I pull my trouser leg up, and I've drawn a happy smiley face on Russell. And uh, <laughs> and Russell has been around, and, he's getting, and people write and congratulate Russell on his latest performances. I've got, I've got friends all around, the, all around America, all around the world, who are following Russell with great interest. And you've seen so much over the decades as running has evolved. Looking back, what are some of the most significant changes you've experienced? Yeah, of course, that, that's, a, that's a huge question. Probably the best way to put it would be to say when I came over in 1980, uh, and I mentioned before, I, was, I had a research leave from New Zealand, so I was, I was away from a university for about six months, uh, ran in that series that Hal Higdon put on, the Masters series, and then I ran the New York City Marathon. It was the first marathon I'd ever run. I was 41. And suddenly I realized the world has changed. Mm. You know, running for me had been a small sport, not very many of us, all, all really serious competitors at whatever level. Um, but 
you might get, you know, 100 guys in the race, very few women, a few women were there. They weren't being excluded or anything, but not many wanted to do it. Uh, it was kind of scruffy and low-key. And, and, and uh, all of a sudden, I think that year in New York, there was something like 13,000, 13 or 14,000 people. This is 1980, so it had, it had really taken off from, from 1976 when it first went through the five boroughs. That was the day I saw it. Um, and realized what had happened. And then, then I came over to America again on another shorter period of leave in 1983 and ran races like the Cascade Runoff and Peachtree. And, I mean, those were just astonishing. The, then I knew that this was, uh, this was a mass sport. And I'm actually quite proud of the fact, David, that um, I kind of saw that very early on. And my first book was called, my first running book, that is, was called Heroes and Sparrows, which is mm. which, which, taking from a line by Alexander Pope. And the theme, basically, was um, that running is for everybody. It's not only for the elites, the heroes, it's also for the sparrows, the people at the back of the pack. And that was perhaps the first book that identified that in 1986. Joe Henderson was saying the same, so I'm not claiming to be the only person who was, who was saying that, but uh, saw that the sport was more than than just an elite competitive sport. Right, and that clearly was prescient at the time. What was it that made you understand that it really was for the sparrows as well as the heroes? I, I think this is in, intrinsic in me because I've always been something of a populist. You know, as, as a scholar, I never wanted to write only for other scholars. I've always been sympathetic with, with people who are not particularly brilliant at, at something, but would still like to do it. And maybe it's because, you know, I had to strive myself to get to get to be any good. I was never a natural born elite. So despite your foresight, are you still surprised to see how big running has gotten and surprised to see things like, uh, you know, run walking and uh, charity runners and, you know, the other developments in the sport that have just continue to bring more and more numbers in and less emphasis on competition. You, I will look at the people teeming around Central Park the day, the day before the race. And every year I think, what happened? You know, just what happened to my little sport? And, I, and, uh, and I'm not critical. It's, it's, it's exciting. It's, um, it's wonderful. But it is, it's perpetually surprising to somebody in my generation because this is, this is not what I grew up. You know, we were nutcases. We were, one of my favorite stories is one day when uh, we were training in Cambridge uh, around the, the cricket field. The, the track in those days went around the cricket field and it was raining, pouring rain on a Saturday. And England's most eminent cricket correspondent wrote in the paper the next day that nothing was to be seen through the rain-smeared windows except the lunatic fringe training around the <laughs> athletic track. Well, that was me. <laughs> That's, that was us. We, we, were the, we were the lunatic fringe. And now it's this mass movement. And, of course, right. it's great because it keeps people like you and me busy writing about it. I'm curious, what do you think are a couple of the lesser-known stories that you think deserve more attention? Well, I'd, I'd mention Hal again, and that series that he did, that was really very enlightened and, and ahead of its time, that series of, of Masters racing. Um, and then there, there were particular events. One I was involved in, uh, which really put running, I think, in, in a kind of central position historically, was when Catherine and I went out, were invited over to Berlin um, by Horst Mulder 
to run the Berlin Marathon. I wasn't fit, I was injured, so I couldn't do the whole distance. But it was the year the Berlin Marathon first went through both parts of, of Berlin, when the wall had just fallen and the race was three days before uh, reunification of Germany. And that race showed that running has become a form of social celebration. Mm. Uh, and that was one that really showed me that running is now, it's, it's much more than just a sport which is only for running. You've got something like that, and, and actually of all the reu reunification celebrations, it was the marathon that was the most impressive, the most celebratory, uh, the most positive, the most, the, the, the most upbeat, and the most, in a way, the most symbolic, because th that was the run-free marathon. And... You know, running expresses expresses freedom, expresses things that our society really values, and so it's 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 more than just a movement. More, it's more than just a health movement. Uh, it seems to me that running is a perfect metaphor for the best in our society, in that it is a a huge communal celebration of individual achievement. It's a fa it's a mm -hmm. fascinating mix about the human instinct to do something yourself and to be a hero, but also to do it along with that huge, great group. So I think that's, these, these big races are very significant for, for the best in our society. Well, that's a great segue into talking about running and literature, I think. Uh, and again, safe to say that you know as much, if not more, than, than anyone, certainly that I've ever met, about the connection between running and literature. So what is it about running, which is such a simple act that lends itself to literary exploration. Well, I think because it is simple, because it's basic, it's no, it doesn't require complicated rules. It does. You don't have to have a ball or or gridiron field or a net or you know any any of that stuff. It's you just you just two of you, two or more, just line up and say, "I'm going to race you to that church or whatever it is." Um, so it's utterly simple. So it appeals to that basic human. It, well, in human nature, you know, our love of movement and, and our, our love of competition. And that means it's, it's got a literature that goes right back as far as literature goes, as, as far back as, as, the, uh, as the ancient Greeks. And, and they used to have races at, at funerals. You know, that was their, their way of celebrating life at a, at a funeral. Just as we have poetry and songs, they, they would get out and have a track meet. So my, my book running in literature started with the ancient Greeks and it came through the Bible and, and, and Shakespeare and through to modern, modern running literature and writers like James Joyce um, and, and Thomas Hardy who wrote about running in, in quite unexpected ways. And, yeah. Um, well, I would say all of those, at least to me, would be unexpected sources of writing about running. Well, of course, David. You know, you have to realize that you know I was I was there being an official full professor of literature and being and being very serious and scholarly yeah. and distinguished and all that stuff. Um, while all the time I was actually a closet runner and, <laughs> and sneaking out every lunchtime. And, and my secretary was under strict orders to to tell anybody who called that that, that I was in the library. Uh, and, it, <laughs> and in fact, I'd be out doing a hard hour and a half interval session um, so all the time I was reading I'd keep finding these bits about running so I was extraordinarily lucky and, and find references references to write I think that's that's really great that's a you know here's Thomas Hardy writing about a woman 
you know, running. She was running off through the wet grass, and he describes it so wonderfully. He says she runs as if she's a bird that's about to take off and doesn't quite take off, a partridge or a pheasant, I think he said. Uh, so I find phrases like that that just capture running in ways that were not just the usual cliché of run like a deer or, or run as fast as an arrow or something. And I kind of collected them over the years. And I am pleased because there have been books about the history of, about the literature of baseball and the literature of golf and the literature of cricket in England. Nobody had done a book about the literature of running. So I was, I was actually the first to do that. So I, was, yeah. so, I'm, so I was pleased to get that one out there. It's on my bookshelf. Oh, great. I'm pleased. <laughs> I'm curious how your immersion in reading about running and then also writing about running affected your running life. I think it gave it a depth. It gave it gave it it gave it a meaning. You know, it's um, I've always found running interesting. People say, "What do you think about when you're running?" And I say, "I think about running." Uh, yeah. I, I don't I don't find it uninteresting. You're, you're you're kind of keying into your body. You're keying into the land. You're thinking of time. You're thinking of weather and what you can do. And and you're judging your own effort so that you can get the best out of yourself. So I find it fascinating. So I, I don't think I'm obsessive because I am interested in other things in life. <laughs> um, but I find it constantly interesting and rewarding. And it's kept me going for whatever, you know, 60 odd years. So, so and I, I, don't see, I don't see any diminution. I mean, as you said, it's getting more interesting all the time because it's, yeah. it's changing and involving more and more people. What do you think is the best book ever written about running one one fiction one non-fiction I, on, the, on the non-fiction I'm actually going to cheat and choose two I'm going to say Roger Bannister's first four minutes which is written with a lyrical passion that nobody's ever quite matched and one that Rodale published Kenny Moore's Bowerman and the Men of, of, of Oregon ah, which is yeah. a superb piece of writing that's that's a biography which I think is a great biography. Never mind the word running. I mean, it's just a great biography. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fascinating. Every uh, I, I love Kenny's writing. Um, if I'm feeling really immodest, I say Kenny is the only running writer who I defer to. You know, if I if yeah. I would get the silver medal, he he's the goal. He's just terrific writer. And there's not a there's not a clunky dull sentence in that book, and it brings the whole that whole scene to life in an absolutely fascinating way. Um, wholeheartedly agree the the best novel when i did running in literature i i chose was one called the fast men by tom McNabb, mm. and i still don't think that's been bettered as a novel actually um it's a running western it's it's set in um it's set it's, it's set in the wild west i have not read that do you have any favorite passages by any chance if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to ask you to, to read a passage or two. Okay, sure. My, my test of, uh, of good running writing uh, is, uh, and I said this in Running in Literature, is, is that it's, um, it needs to be like going out for a run wearing your best road flats, which are springy and, and, let, and, and let you really move and semi-fly along the road. Uh, whereas bad writing is like trying to go for a run in a pair of jandals or something, and it just goes clunk, clunk, and, and, and there's absolutely no, no life in it. Um, so this one, I think, has, has, plen has, has plenty of lift. The situation is there's just been a boxing match, and just to be very brief, and the, the, uh, the crowd uh, get rowdy, and, the, and, and they want to attack Buck, and so he runs away. Um, 
and the mob had scattered sideways to left and right through gaps in the surrounding hedgerows, but we'd been driven back by policemen, and he's running away from them. But he sees a four-foot-high barrel wooden fence. Buck sprinted towards it, weaving his way towards through the escaping crowd. He cleared the ditch without mishap, only just missing the head of a spectator below him who was desperately wallowing his way through its muddy waters. Buck took the fence in a vault, slithering onto his face in the slimy mud on the other side, then getting to his feet to splatter through a doughy ploughed field. See, that's a nice bit of writing, splatter through a doughy ploughed field. That really gets yeah. the, gets both the movement and also the the difficulty. That's that's. I, I quoted a passage of Thomas Hardy talking, writing about that, trying to get through ploughed fields. He had not moved so fast since the run of the arrow, which is the one when they, they was with the Indian tribe. Even the clogging clay of the field could not interrupt his rhythm. Buck flowed over it, and in a few hundred yards was well clear of the whistling and hallooing behind him. He was surprised to find that despite the speed of his flight, he was hardly out of breath. He had run two miles across this cold, godforsaken country, and yet he was feeling good. It was surely the same as it had been in the run of the arrow. Not only did he have pace, he had endurance, that rare ability to sustain speed. Buck smiled to himself as he squelched along the muddy lane, steam beginning to rise from him as the rain stopped and he tried to dry off. See, that, that seems to me to have a lot about of, of what's the essence of running, you know, the physical feeling of it, the, you know, the wetness, the muddiness, the steam on you, that sense of um, the, the, the good distance runner who realizes that, that you can sustain speed for a long time. And then really good physical writing, like splattering through a doughy ploughed field and and um, and squelching along the muddy muddy lane. So writing itself that 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 expresses the expresses the experience. So I think it is good. Thanks for getting me to look at that book again. I haven't looked at it for a the, couple of years. <laughs> another theme that you talk about in running and literature is fatigue. Why is fatigue important, both to running and also in ways that are larger than running? Uh, I find it, um, people get, people are afraid of feeling tired and I don't, I don't think they should be. I think it's, it's a, it's an absolutely natural process and something that is in a way quite cathartic. Um, you go through it, you're sort of purged, um, you then recover and of course the body then um, rebuilds and thinks, oh well, if you're going to do that again, I'm going to have to make some changes, and that's uh, you know that's how you get fit. I th- I think in our society we're afraid of discomfort, we're afraid of being hungry, uh, we're afraid of being tired, and they're natural things, and and they're things that the the, the body is is giving us information about. Uh, but if you push through, especially the tiredness, the, then then you that's the way you improve. And the whole principle of training is 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 overuse and then recovery and then and then rebuild. And so I I do believe in in yes in in pushing through and and um, and learning new things and challenging yourself. And, and that's been part of the story of my life. You know, I'm always. Oh, this is the first podcast I've ever done, so there's always a new experience. <laughs> and, and I've gone through, and I found myself doing. Right. I found myself yeah. doing stadium announcing and and television commentary and and covering marathons uh, for you on the live blog. And and uh, these are all new, and 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 this seems to go on. I seem to be perpetually on a steep learning curve, um, and I don't mind. I think it's I think it's very good for you. You know, that's that's the way you stop getting old.
That was my conversation with journalist, author, running historian, and seriously fast Masters athlete, Roger Robinson. It probably won't shock you to hear that we're big readers over here at Runner's World. And, you know, if there's one thing readers love, it's the chance to talk about the writing they love. It's especially great when you're reading something great that isn't directly about running, and you come upon a brilliant passage, a terrific piece of writing that is about running. My favorite recent example of that is a novel that I read last year called Brewster by Mark Slauka. And here... A couple of our staffers share their favorite running-related passages and why they find them so meaningful. I'm Allie Nolan, an associate editor at Runner's World magazine, and I'm reading a passage from The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. So at this moment, uh, Lola de Leon is narrating, um, and she is Oscar, the main character in the book's uh, sister, and Basically, she's run away to Wildwood, New Jersey, but Oscar has brought his overbearing mother and uncle to come rescue her from the boyfriend that she's living with. Oscar, I screamed, but it was too late. My mother already had me in her hands. She looked so thin and worn, almost like a hag, but she was holding on to me like I was her last nickel, and underneath her red wig, her green eyes were furious. I noticed absently that she had dressed up for the occasion. That was typical. Muchacha del Diablo, she screamed. I managed to haul her out of the coffee shop, and when she pulled back her hand to smack me, I broke free. I ran for it. Behind me, I could feel her sprawling, hitting the curb hard with a crack, but I wasn't going back. No, I was running. In elementary school, whenever we had field day, I was always the fastest girl in my grade, took home all the ribbons. They said it wasn't fair because I was so big, but I didn't care. I could even have beat the boys if I'd wanted to. So there was no way my sick mother, my messed up T.O., and my fat brother were going to catch me. I was going to run as fast as my long legs could carry me. I was going to run down the boardwalk, past Aldo's miserable house, out of Wildwood, out of New Jersey, and I wasn't going to stop. I was going to fly. I think that this stood out really because... You basically, like, you can't not love Lola in this book. Uh, And in reading it, I just thought, oh, here's this really strong female character who happens to discover a passion for running kind of by accident. And I love the way that Diaz talks about her legs, talks about her strength. And it's kind of a theme throughout the whole book. Um, And really her strength stems from her legs and from how she motors about on them. The other reason I really just love this section is that um, I feel like in literature a lot we use the theme running away, um, and Diaz doesn't really let that metaphor of running rest at a really basic level. Um, Running comes up again several times, and for Lola it's a means to grow. And I think that, you know, a lot of teenage girls relate to somebody who is running away and running out of past situation or running to something. And I think it's just a really beautiful thing that Lola, you know, does run away, but then eventually finds her ground uh, running track.
Hi, my name is Christopher Michael. I'm a digital editor at Runner's World, and this is a poem by the poet William Stafford called Run Before Dawn. Most mornings I get away, slip out the door before light, set forth on the dim gray road, letting my feet find a cadence that softly carries me on. Nobody is up. All alone, my journey begins. Some days it's escape, The city is burning behind me. Cars have stalled in their tracks, and everybody is fleeing, like me, but some other direction. My stride is for life, a far place. Other days it is hunting. Maybe some game will cross my path, and my stride will follow for hours, matching all turns. My breathing has caught the right beat for endurance. Familiar, trance-like scenes glide by. And sometimes it's a dream of motion, Streetlights coming near, passing, shadows that lean before me, lengthened, then fading, and a sound from a tree, a soul, or an owl. These journeys are quiet. They mark my death with adventure, too precious for anyone else to share, little gems of darkness, the world going by, and my breath, and the road. One of the things I really like about this is that William Stafford was the kind of poet who wrote every single day. And it made him very prolific. And it really pleases me to know that he also was a runner. So he's doing the same run every day, but in order to kind of keep his mind active, he's not letting himself just be bored. He's coming up with these different ways of thinking about what the run is and imagining why he's running different reasons. And they're kind of beautiful reasons, right? It's He's escaping a burning city. He's hunting down game. Um, he's just in a dream, you know, of motion, passing shadows that lean before me, lengthened and fading. But, but the thing of it is, is that they're all solitary. I think the thing that I really like is the way that he evokes the way that running works for me. I often go into my runs with a lot of things on my mind, things that I'm trying to think about. Running is a way of emptying out my mind. Um, one of the things that this poem does is it starts with um, right these these sort of like full scenes. You know, he's escaping the zombie apocalypse, and then it it turns into something maybe like a little less uh, frightening and dangerous. He's just out for a hunt and running alone, chasing down a deer. But the last scene isn't really so much of a scene. It's just this kind of, you know, almost thoughtless, empty dream of motion. And going on a, on a good run usually has that effect for me. It's a place to kind of find some peace and some solitude. And actually, that's what poetry does for me, too. At mile 26 of the New York City Marathon, the course makes a sharp right-hand turn off of 59th Street through Columbus Circle and into the southwestern corner of Central Park. It's a thrilling spot for runners. There's a band blaring live music and bleachers full of screaming spectators. That's not the scene that greets the very, very, very back of the pack, however, those who are finishing more than 10 hours after the race started. Reporter Kit Fox went to Columbus Circle to talk to these final finishers and the small, rowdy, eternally upbeat crew 
who stayed to cheer them on. It's 8 p.m., hours after the winners have broken the tape. And here at Columbus Circle, just 0.2 miles from the New York City Marathon finish line, it's dark and it's chilly. The bleachers here, which were once packed with spectators, are completely empty. There's cars driving on the streets. But amazingly, more than 10 hours after the race started, runners are still trickling in. And there's a hardcore group of around a dozen spectators welcoming those runners to Central Park. My name is Tracy B. Wilson, and I am a a part-time announcer for the Roadrunners. Tracy is the loudest of the bunch. She constantly jumps back and forth from one foot to the other. She's holding a yellow sign with a blue arrow pointing to the right. The arrow has flashing lights around it, and the sign says finish line with this big exclamation point. She was on the mic as an official MC at the same spot during the day. But for the past 10 or so years, she stayed until the bitter end to encourage the stragglers. Her voice is hoarse because she's been encouraging runners all day. So, you know, my official job was done at 5.30 when I took the stage down. But I I like to make the sign, I like to cheer people on because so many people, especially at this time, worked really, really, really hard to get here. And and are running with specific stories and have reasons to be here. And at this point, I made a sign with uh, an arrow to the finish line that lights up because people don't know where to go. And and I want to welcome them to the finish line. (laughs) Without Tracy and the 10 or so bundled up people lined up next to her, these runners would probably get lost. All the barriers are gone and being taken away, and there just isn't much signage. I mean, not to mention, these people have been on the course for up to 10 hours. They trickle by like every 30 seconds to a minute, and most of them are in tears. These are the people who probably were told that they shouldn't be out here. Many of them are elderly or have a disability. A woman on crutches gets this especially loud ovation as she goes by. Coming along here. We got some more runners. Come on, runners! Let's do this, marathoners! A woman named Mara Lassner is there. She's wrapped in a blue New York Roadrunners poncho, the kind that you get after finishing the race. This was her second marathon. She finished hours ago and hobbled to this spot to meet up with her husband, Jamie. He's still out on the course. And I asked her how she would react when she saw him. What do you, what do you think you're going to feel or know when you oh, see tell him? Tell me because... not to scream. Woo! Are you going to scream? <laughs> They're going to scream. <laughs> I said I wouldn't. <laughs> when she does see him, Mara gives Jamie this massive hug. She joins him as they enter Central Park. I tagged along here to see how Jamie was feeling. Well, I'm going to be a marathoner, and then a minute later, I will be retiring from marathoning. <laughs> you I'll say that? The short, I'll, no, I'm sticking to the short races. <laughs> Jamie tells me his dad died recently, and that in the past five years, he's lost almost 240 pounds. This is his first marathon. He's limping because of a bum knee. He was a volunteer medic during 9-11 and injured his knee falling downstairs while sheltering people in a nearby building when one of the towers came down. He sees the 26-mile marker and fights back tears. I'm about to lose it on this microphone. I may lose it. Yeah, this is amazing. Why is that? Because it's, it's emotional. You know, I wish my dad was here to see it. Uh, you know, who would have thought what would have happened 15 years ago to me and where I am now? 
you know, thank God, really thank God and my family. Jamie finishes in seven hours and 57 minutes. I jog back to Columbus Circle, and the welcoming gauntlet is still there, cheering as loud as ever. They include Ryan Hatcher, a national director for the charity organization Team in Training. He and some colleagues are holding a massive flag with the organization's logo on it, waiting for three more runners from the team to finish. For us, like, every person with a bib is part of the family, and so we may as well cheer for them if we're out here and, and make them know that their accomplishment is just as meaningful as the people that finished five hours ago. Yeah. As we chat, an elderly man wearing a blue hat totters towards us. He's clutching the sleeves of two guides and wearing these big black sunglasses with orange-tinted lenses. His name is Jonathan Mendez. He turned 96 years old two days ago. He's going on hour 11 out on the course. Well, I, w I couldn't have made it without these two wonderful guys. What have you guys been chatting about doing? Oh, <laughs> life. <laughs> About the next mile. <laughs> How far are we to the end? John last finished the New York City Marathon in 2010, when he was 90. Back then, he was the oldest ever finisher of the race. That record later was broken by a 91-year-old. So, John entered the race last year determined to reclaim it. But sore legs forced him to drop out at mile 16. I walk with John and his guides. One of them, John's personal trainer, Tom Mangan, sums up his drive. That's, that's been, his, that's been, his, that's been his, his driving motivation, yeah. is to get that record back. I asked John about why he'd put himself through this. I mean, he's 96 after all. He's a World War II and Korea War vet having flown more than 170 combined missions for the Marines. He really does not have anything to prove. So last year you, uh, you had to stop at mile 16, I know. Yeah. yeah. Why sign up again? Because it's there. John's second guide, Art Berman, tries to explain it himself. John, you know? John likes the challenge of doing it. He's a very <laughs> determined man, as you may have figured out. <laughs> I mean... I, I can't understand the, <laughs> the level of determination, no, John. <laughs> he's, 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 a very, he's a very tough guy, very tough mentally and physically. As we near the finish line, I notice an emblem on John's hat. The brim has a gold insignia on it. Yeah. John, can you describe what's on the top of your hat? Is that oh, your... Uh... That's uh, the Marine Corps Scout Bomber Squadron that I flew with in the Pacific in the Marshall Islands. World War II. I flew more than a hundred missions with them, but they're mostly simple anti-submarine patrols, not too many bombing the Japanese. Of the 33 pilots from World War II, there are only three of us still alive. Yeah. We're near the finish line now. John has to stop and stretch. We can see spotlights dancing over the asphalt in blue and green and red next to empty grandstands. I can't help it, so I ask the classic question you ask someone who's lived so long and seen so much of life. Can you, do you have any advice? Life advice or marathon advice? I'd say everything in moderation, nothing to excess. Don't do anything that's likely to hurt you, but go to your full capacity. 
Okay, that sounds kind of crazy for a guy who's 96, about to finish traveling 26.2 miles on foot. Doesn't seem moderate at all. Seems pretty extreme, actually. But John's actually serious. Last year, when he tried to break the record and failed, he didn't feel right. So he just hailed a cab at mile 16 and went home. This year, though, his body is held up. 50 feet from the finish line, we can hear the 80s anthem, I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany. John isn't alone, though. There's a cluster of more than a dozen New York Roadrunners volunteers mingling just past the finishing arches. I run ahead to take photos, and they can't help but notice John approaching. Is this an athlete? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's 96. Oh, my God. Woo! The race director, Peter Chacha, notices John and jogs out a few feet from the finish. He escorts John across the line and presents him with a finisher's medal. Marine. Number five. Number five. You're right, John finished in 11 hours and 23 minutes. His time didn't officially count because the sanctioned race clock was turned off more than an hour ago. He really doesn't seem to mind. Per his request, John's trainer pulls out a small paper bag with many bottles of Johnny Walker Black Label. John is escorted to the medical tent. He says he's fine. He just wants to lie down and enjoy the liquor. How, how is the scotch tasting? Just like every other one I've had before. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> he leans into the microphone and says he's going to tell me the secret to his longevity. You, and you can't repeat this one. A quart of whiskey a day and a good woman in reverse order. <laughs> John is not the last finisher of the 2016 New York City Marathon. As he sips his scotch, more runners march towards Central Park. Waiting for them still is Tracy and her flashing sign and a small group of yelling companions. At one point, a pedicab driver sees someone with a bib number shuffle on by. Wait, people are still running, he asks me. Yeah, I say. It's been a long journey for these runners. The ones who have probably been told they're too old or too injured or too something to take on 26.2 miles. But if they've made it this far to Columbus Circle, there are some hardcore fans ready to celebrate their finish. Now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and senior editor Heather Mayer Irvin. Okay, so it's a week since Thanksgiving. I think we're finally all getting over our food coma, Heather. And thanks for joining us. Um, I know you had success at your Thanksgiving-themed race last weekend, right? Yes, I ran the Bethlehem Turkey Trot, uh, and I actually was the first female finisher, and I beat my 13-year-old niece, by two seconds, and now we're we're one and one. Wow! Congratulations. Thank but you. y- your husband also <laughs> was very successful. 
he he ran in a full turkey costume. A full turkey costume. This is the third or fourth turkey trot he's worn it. He made the local paper like mm-hmm. 10 times over. And, uh, so he's it's much more he came away with a much better sense of himself after the race. He did. Yeah. He did. And and I was very happy I took him a pie from my Thanksgiving Day race. So goal accomplished for the year. You're not allowed home if you don't win a pie. Is pretty that much. Right? That's pretty much how it works. So um, got my pie. Maybe a million people raced on Thanksgiving. That was according to Running USA. If numbers like trended the way they have been, that could have been like the biggest race day ever. Wow. So Thanksgiving, the most popular holiday by far over Halloween and the 4th of July. So people like to burn those calories before they consume like 10,000 during the day. It's a good way to start the day for sure. So to get the kick going, besides Thanksgiving, I wanted to take a step back to the Philadelphia Marathon. We didn't get to the story because we were off last week. But um, at the Philly Marathon, Steve Cinco, he's a runner. He's 40. He ran a really good time. 2.56, I would love to break three hours. But Steve did it while pushing 180 pounds. So what do you mean? Himself? No, like pushing like an adaptive stroller. So he's a personal trainer, a high school track coach, a really good runner, a sub-230 guy. In this marathon on November 20th, he pushed 18-year-old Preston Bonega in an adaptive running chair. And Preston, he has mitochondrial disease that causes like cellular damage and leads to low muscle tone. So he's usually in a wheelchair and they race together. How'd they meet each other? So our reporter Danielle spoke with Steve this week, and he said that they met in 2014 at a fundraiser in Wilmington. Preston's family does a charity organization that raises money for these adaptive racing chairs. So from there, they went and did 5Ks together, and it it kind of just grew from there, and they wanted to do a marathon at some point. Well, so how did they train for this? Yeah, it's a lot different from just doing a long run on your own on the weekend, right? So... Steve said he logged the usual like 55 miles per week running, but most of those were while pushing this stroller. So he wanted to be ready for it. A lot of the runs were with Preston with him, pushing him, and that's about 180 pounds. When when Preston couldn't be there, he'd load up the chair with 140 pounds of dumbbells or sandbags. He even took his father out, who weighs like 200 pounds out in this adaptive running chair, just to be ready for this race. So... Uh, amazing accomplishment for them. And Preston seems to really like it. Yeah, yeah. He he wore the race medal to school the next day. Um, you know, he always has a smile at the finish line. That's what he told Danielle in the story. And, you know, for Steve, you know, his quote, I really liked it. He said, it, it's something really powerful to be a part of. It just shows the power of inclusion and what it can do at races and the Philly Marathon was a great example of that. So congratulations to Steve and Preston. That's great. So talking about weight, on the flip side, mm-hmm. uh, Ambie Burfoot just uh, wrote an article about a study that looked at how your racing shoes or how your running shoes can affect your race time. Also, some, something a little easier than not pushing 180 pounds in a adaptive stroller. Yeah, right? just maybe swapping out your shoes. Okay, yeah. So tell me about this. So there was some research out of the University of Colorado that looked at the weight of your running shoes and your run performance. Okay, so like your time. And yes. Yeah, so in this study, they took 17 male runners and they made them do three rounds of a 3,000-meter time trial. 
And the way they did this is they put them in these Nike Zoom Streak 5 shoes. Um, but each time they ran it, they, they were in a different weight of this shoe. So they either added 100 grams or 300 grams to these shoes. So three different weights and three different runs. And just for reference, these Nike Zoom Streaks are like 5.4 ounces to start. And that's about 150 grams, about a typical racing flat. Right, right. And and for reference, a typical trainer is about 250 grams. Right. So in the end, like after all these trials, tell us what they found here. So it was actually pretty interesting and, and goes to show how much your shoes actually can affect your running. Mm-hmm. Uh, running economy varied by about 1% per 100 grams, as did running performance. And what's in, also interesting is this is the first fully subject-blinded trial of shoe weights and performance, which is interesting given, you know, these runners didn't know what what shoes they were running. Yeah, it's kind of hard to usually trick people in a study like this into your shoe is not going to be that significantly different. But they did a good job here of, like, sewing in the weights and hiding it from these runners. So, you know, 1%, it doesn't sound like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but in running it actually, it can make a difference. Yeah, so Ambi looked at you know, a half marathon time and with a goal of two hours, which is pretty common, and 1% is actually more than a minute off of your time. So you're looking at a 158.45, and that gets you under your two-hour goal pretty comfortably. Yeah, and 1% even for a 5K, if, you're, if you have a specific time goal of getting under 23 minutes and you want to get 1%, like a few seconds can make a big difference for that PR that you're aiming for. Um, and so... So when I saw this, I wondered, is it really practical? And in a way, it is, because as you mentioned, a typical training shoe, maybe 250 grams, um, that's what you run in all the time. But if you can easily transition into a racing flat or something a little lighter on race day, it's almost like you can give yourself a physical and mental boost that, oh, I have 1% behind me to get a little bit faster on race day. Exactly. I I train in trainers and I wear flats on race day, and it, it's, it's significant. Okay, and so the final thing I want to talk about this week, it's kind of the intersection of really good running on the track and in the real world and fictional running, Heather. So when's the last time you saw Forrest Gump? I think it's on, like, every weekend. Uh, probably saw it, like, 15 years ago. Really? I know. I think I, I watch it once a year and cry every time. I really should. It's a, it's a good one, and, and you, people should love that movie, but there's one thing I think runners are completely tired of after two decades of the movie being out. Can I guess what that is? Yeah, go ahead. Is it Run, Forest, Run? Yeah, I think we've all gotten that either uh, seen that as a race sign or you, someone's yelling that to you in a race or just out on a training run. Someone's just randomly yelling that at you. And it turns out um, Mo Farah, who was on this British talk show with Tom Hanks last week, the Graham Norton show, um, he gets that same treatment all the time. Let's listen to him on the Graham Norton show talk to Tom about just getting that even as a double 5,000 and 10,000 meter Olympic gold medalist. It's amazing what he does is, when you go for a run, run for it, run! (laughs) (laughs) Which is is a nice thing, it's a compliment. You've got to think, you go to all that trouble of becoming a famous runner and they're still calling you another name. (laughs) (laughs) How hard is Mo? <laughs> run Farah, run. That could then maybe that could work. Uh, see, there you yeah. go. Run far, run. Take it, folks. It is my gift unto you. Yeah, and I think if you watch the full clip, Heather, I think Tom 
Hanks is even tired of always talking about Forrest Gump. So I think we're with him here. We would like to say, world, you can retire that phrase from your race signs and yelling that at runners, right? I I agree. And you can also stop saying, oh, it's bad for your knees. It's bad for your knees. And, you know, you're almost there when it's mile 13 at, you know, in the middle of your marathon. Yeah, please stop. Okay, Heather, thanks for coming down, doing the kick. And once again, congratulations on your win. But next year, maybe run as a turkey to get more attention. I might have to. Congratulations to you too, Brian. That's it for this week's show. Please take a minute to give us a rating and a review. And thanks for those of you who have done so already. It really helps us make the show better. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Mervyn Deganos. Please join us next week when we follow an injured runner through a unique evaluation program that just may suss out the cause and potential treatment of his plantar fasciitis, the two most awful words any runner can ever hear. Also, in an upcoming episode, we will be doing a New Year, New You roundtable. So please send us your goals for 2017, whatever those are, and also your burning questions about training, nutrition, injury prevention, and motivation. You can send all the above to us at rwaudio at rodale, that's R-O-D-A-L-E, dot com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.